Do you ever get frustrated by your coworkers? Anybody willing to admit that? You're like, no, because my coworkers here this morning. I invited them. They finally came to church. So no, I'm never frustrated with my coworkers, let me tell you. But most of us, I think, understand what it's like. If you've ever worked with people, then you know what it's like to be frustrated by people. I've had some instances in my life where I was working at a job and I looked at my, my coworkers and I'm like, how are you even employed here? You know, like with the things that you say and the things that you do, I just can't believe that you have not lost your job yet. Maybe in your circumstances, you've been alongside, you've worked alongside of people who did sloppy work, or they were rude to customers, or, you know, they ate everybody's food out of the staff refrigerator, which is probably the worst thing a coworker could do to eat your lunch. We have all had to deal with bad coworkers before. Now, it might surprise you to know that there are several instances in the New Testament in which Jesus got incredibly frustrated with his coworkers. Now, when I use that word coworker with Jesus, I'm using it kind of loosely. I'm talking about the apostles, the 12 apostles or disciples that followed Jesus and learned from him. And it's true that time and time again, Jesus is with them and he's teaching them and he's leading them and they say or do something and he is like, what is wrong with you? Why would you say that? Why would you behave that way? Why would you treat those people in that manner? He had a lot of frustration because his coworkers, his disciples, his friends really didn't seem to get it, you guys. They missed the mark an awful lot. Let me show you an example, one of two that we'll talk about this morning from Luke chapter number nine. Luke chapter number nine, we'll read uh, verses 51 through 53 here uh, to start. It'll be on the screen for you. The scripture says, as the time drew near for him, Jesus, to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. All right, let me give you a little bit of context here. You probably aren't super familiar with like ancient Israel and geography and things like that. Don't worry about it. Basically, imagine a country that's kind of like a, a long vertical horizontal shape. Vertical horizontal, that's the dumbest thing I've ever said. A, a long vertical rectangle, that's the word I'm looking for. It's too early, you guys. I mean, 9 a.m. is real early. Anyway, so imagine this uh, long rectangle, and it's kind of divided into three provinces. There are more, but we can think of three of them. We've got the northern province, the middle province, and the southern province. Now, Jesus and his followers here in Luke chapter number nine, they're in the northern province of Galilee, and they want to get to the southern province of Judah so they can get to the capital city of Jerusalem. And the shortest way to get from the northern province to the southern province is to go right through the middle province province, which was called Samaria. Now, Samaria was a really unique place. It had people who spoke a different language, people who had a very different culture. They didn't always get along well with the other provinces. They were constantly talking about seceding and gaining their own independence. Is this sounding familiar to anybody? Yeah, it's just like those nut jobs out in Manitoba. You know, they've just got all sorts of wacky. No, of course not. Anyway, all right. So we've got this province. It's a country within a country, essentially. And because there's such tension and the cultures are so different and things like that, Samaritans rarely would go into the Israelite provinces. And if an Israelite wanted to travel north to south, rather than going straight through Samaria, they would often go around, even though that would add several days to their journey. Okay? 
So when Jesus is getting ready to head to Jerusalem, he's like, no, we're not going the long way. We're going to go straight through Samaria. But because Jesus was only intending on passing through Samaria, the Samaritans took it as a bit of a slight. They're like, oh, we're not good enough for you to stop by and talk and teach and do miracles in our province. So no, you're not welcome here. Now, of course, the irony is Jesus had done many miracles in Samaria already. It had been a big kind of scandalous thing. And so this is them being dramatic and all those different things. So they told Jesus, no, we are not going to welcome you here. Now watch how the disciples respond in verse 54. This is so crazy. When James and John, who were brothers, biological brothers, when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? Those dirty, rotten Samaritans, let's roast them, Jesus. And I don't mean in the jokey sort of way. I mean, literally, let's roast them. But Jesus turned and he rebuked his disciples. He said, you don't realize what your hearts are like. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy people's lives, but he came to save them. So they went on to another village. Well, that escalated quickly, you guys, okay? Can you imagine Jesus, who's been so kind and compassionate to absolutely everybody? I mean, he's, you know, embraced lepers and prostitutes and poor people and irreligious people. He has treated everyone on the planet with nothing but love and grace and compassion. And then his disciples are like, let's kill them all, God. Let's be done with every single one of them. In both of these, uh, or rather, um, let me give you another example, and then I'm going to talk to you about both of them. Um, in Luke chapter number nine, verses 49 and 50. So this is, the sa- this is an event that happens just before the one that we just read. So these are back-to-back events, and I think the fact that the scripture puts both of them together in the same passage is trying to tell us something about the mindset that the disciples carried versus Jesus, and then it's going to tell us something about the mindset we carry today. Okay, Luke chapter number nine, look at verses 49 and 50. John, now this is the same guy. It was James and John who were like, let's burn them, okay? John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop. What? Why? Why would you tell him to stop? Casting out demons is a wonderful thing. You're doing ministry and setting people free. Like, this should be the happiest day. You should be thrilled that people are experiencing freedom in the name of Jesus. But he says, no, we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. He's not one of us. He's not one of the 12. He's not one of the 72. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know how he found out about your name. I don't know how he decided that God had authorized him to go set people free and cast out demons. But we knew, Jesus, that you would not be happy about that. So we told him to shut his mouth, knock it off, go back to work, and leave these people alone. Let them stay with their demon affliction. It's true. But Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. Okay. In both of these instances, I can imagine Jesus and his disappointment with his followers. I mean, he has got to be thinking like, you guys, you don't understand what I'm trying to do here at all. You don't understand. And it seems like you don't even care to learn what's really going on and what I'm all about. You're missing the mark again and again and again. It's like Jesus is saying, and he actually spells this out in later passages, that he did come to wage war against the enemy. Jesus did come to wage war against an enemy. But the enemy is not people. The enemy is not people, okay? 
Jesus is going to tell his disciples that you cannot win the battle that he has sent them out to fight. You cannot win that battle using the tactics of the world. You can't rely on arguments and violence and coercion. Jesus is going to show them that, no, he came for a different purpose and he came to illustrate a different way. It's like he's saying here, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to have to learn to stop fighting in ways that advance the kingdoms of this world and instead fight in ways that are going to advance the kingdom of God. This is why his comment where he says, guys, you don't even know what your heart is like. I think it's so important because you and I are really not that much different from the disciples. Now, we might not be so brash and we may never speak the words that we think, but come on, there have been times we wanted to just burn people up. God called fire, let's get fire down on these people. Let's roast them where they stand. I can't deal with them anymore. I'm sure you're as frustrated with them as I am. Boom. There have been times you wanted to shut people up. Times that people were different than you. They believed different than you. They, they had some different characteristic quality. They belonged to a different group. And you were like, hey, you know what? Shh, stop. We don't need to hear anything more from you. Okay? We are no different in, 20, in the 21st century than the apostles were in the first century. And that's why the way that Jesus responds to his disciples, rebuking them and, and telling them that they should love people in his name rather than battle against people in his name is so very important. I think it would do us good to give ourselves a heart check up this morning and to make sure that although we claim to follow Jesus, are we actually aligned with his ways and his words? Or are we missing the mark just like the apostles did? So this morning, what I want to do is I want to give you three principles that we find here from Luke chapter number nine, and I'm going to show you some other scriptures that also support these. And I just believe that if you would take these to heart, it would change your perspective, your orientation, your um, kind of posture towards the rest of the world. If you were really to give these like full consideration and put them into practice in your life. So the first one that we see here, this is, these are all phrased and framed as a declaration, something that you speak. It is a truth about you. The first one, it's already there on the screen for you. People are not my enemy. People are not my enemy. This is one of the big mistakes that the disciples made throughout the gospels. They viewed people as enemies. The Samaritans were enemies. The Pharisees They were their enemies. This guy who's casting out demons and he's not really a part of their club, their crew, viewed as an enemy, all right? But Jesus says that he didn't come to destroy these people. He came to save these people. Do you understand this? Jesus did not come to win a battle against these people. Jesus came to win the battle for these people. Do you catch that? The disciples are fighting against people. Jesus is fighting for people. What are we called to do? To be like Christ, to fight for people, to fight for their souls, to fight for their knowledge of God, to fight for their freedom instead of against it. We should be like Christ and not like the disciples here in this passage. My friends, we do have enemies in this world. But our enemies are not people. In Ephesians chapter number six, we have this very famous passage that speaks of the armor of God. And I want you to look at what it says. It says, put on all of God's armor 
so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. There we go. There's, this is going to be our enemy that we're talking about here. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. You are not fighting against your coworker. You are not fighting against the opposing political party. You are not fighting against your brother-in-law. You are not fighting against your neighbor that won't respect the noise ordinance. We are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist who? The enemy in the time of evil. We have an enemy, but our enemy is not people. And I'm afraid that too many of us in the modern church have started to view other people as the enemy. We have postured ourselves in war against one another. Hey, we have even divided ourselves and put ourselves in opposition to one another in churches like Connect. There are people on this side of the aisle that don't like people on this side of the aisle. Not literally, okay? You're like, who don't like me over there? What's up? Let's go. No, I don't mean that literally, but I mean, there. Yeah, it's like pointing and no, you're good. I like you. It's her. I don't care about. I get it. I get it. I really do. But the truth is the, the church has begun to behave like these sinful disciples instead of the gracious savior that we say that we follow. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself, who do I want to call fire down on right now? Who in my life would I like to, ju God, judge them, give them justice, give them what they deserve, let them have it, don't hold anything back. Who is it that you would call fire down on right now if you could? Liberals? Anti-vaxxers? Your ex-wife? Your son's hockey coach? Who is it that you would call fire down on right now? And then remind yourself that although we have people that feel like our enemies, Christ calls us to show those people compassion and not contempt. Okay, the church, Christians, you and I, we should be known for compassion rather than contempt. We should be known for fighting for people rather than against people. What unites us, particularly as believers, is far greater than anything that divides us. And so rather than viewing ourselves in competition and opposition to absolutely everybody who doesn't believe and feel exactly what I do, we want to take a more humble posture because that's exactly the one that Christ took. People are not my enemy. You guys, there is something wrong, like fundamentally wrong with saying, I love Jesus, but I hate people. There is something fundamental. Those things do not go together. I love Jesus, but I hate people. Or I hate those people. I hate that person. No, 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 no. We serve a savior who loved the ones who were his enemies, who gave himself. He sacrificed. He showed them grace and kindness. He gave them forgiveness this is what we're called to do as believers. And if you say, no, 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 not me, uh-uh, no way. I will never be okay with those type of people and I'm never gonna forgive her. Don't call yourself a Christian then. Don't do it, okay? Because this is part and parcel of what it means to follow after Jesus. We've gotta get real about this, you guys. We cannot win the world if we fight like the world. We cannot win the world if we view the world as our enemy. 
We can't win the battle that Christ has called us to win if we're fighting the wrong enemy altogether. You have an enemy, but it is not people. And so I'm begging you, for the sake of the name of Jesus, for the unity of his church globally, and for the unity of Connect Church. And I'm not, like, this is not a sermon where I'm addressing something that happened this week. You know, it's like two Christians in Connect Church got beef. No, I'm friends on Facebook with most of you guys. And I know that a lot of what we say and post publicly is divisive and it's focused on the wrong things and it views other people as enemies. And so I can only imagine what you're like when it's just you and your wife at home and you're ranting about what you see on the news or whatever. So I'm not addressing anything in particular. I'm just begging you guys for the sake of the unity of the church, the name of Jesus and the mission of his church, let's not view people as the enemy. Let's view people as the prize. Let's view people as the ones who matter. They're the purpose. They're the point in all of this. Man, can you imagine if we had viewed some of you as enemies? Like first time you walked into Connect Church, we were like, no, 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 not you. I know what you've been up to. I know. You don't belong. You don't fit. You don't have a place here. We didn't treat you like that. We can't treat others like that. Why? Because Jesus didn't treat us like that, you guys. Jesus loved us. He gave us compassion. We were dirty, rotten sinners. We were on the wrong end of every single issue. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we got it wrong every single time. And yet Jesus was still good to us. We have a responsibility to be good to one another as well. People are not my enemy. Second declaration that we see here in Luke chapter number nine is that my weapons are not earthly. People are not my enemy and my weapons are not earthly weapons. In Luke chapter number nine, James and John, they wanted to use coercion. They wanted to shut this guy up. We told him, knock it off, man. I'm gonna use my authority as one of Jesus' 12. Stop doing what you're doing, okay? And they wanted to use violence. They were willing to call fire down from heaven and roast these guys. Um, they were willing to use weapons of the world in order to accomplish what they thought God wanted in the world, okay? But it doesn't work that way. This is also why Jesus gives them the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Did you know that? James and John are called Sons of Thunder, which to me would be an amazing name for like a tag team wrestling duo. I can just imagine James and John walking into the ring. ACDC's Thunderstruck is playing as they come in. Sons of thunder, you know? But Jesus was not complimenting them when he called them the sons of thunder. He wasn't cool. He was, he was I don't want to say he's mocking them, but he is like, he's being a little sarcastic. He's trying to get them to understand, hey, listen, that's the way you used to live. That's the way you used to fight. But if you're going to be one of my followers, that's not what you're like anymore. There's a new way. There is a new way, all right? So anyway, um, they, they, these apostles, they're trying to fight spiritual battles with earthly weapons, and there's no possibility for them to win that way. And we have a tendency to do the exact same thing. But listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter number 10 says. It says, we are human, but we do not wage war as humans. We're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down strongholds. My friends, if we want to fight the correct enemy, if we want to fight for the right things, if we want to win the eternal battles that truly matter, we cannot use the weapons and tactics of this world. We use the weapons and tactics that Jesus gave us, the weapons and tactics of the Spirit. So let me tell you guys, prayer will accomplish far more than politics ever will in our world. Nah, you don't believe that. You don't believe that. You know how I know that? Because you spent more time complaining about Mayor Nenshi than you did praying for the man. I did too. 
I did too. Prayer will accomplish more than politics will because politics is something of the world. It doesn't mean it's inherently bad, but it means it's nowhere near as powerful as the weapons of the spirit. You will accomplish more for your marriage by praying for your spouse every single day than by yelling and arguing and bickering and trying and everything else. You'll accomplish more for your neighborhood. You'll accomplish more for our country. You will accomplish more for our world if you were to pray because prayer is a powerful spiritual weapon. In the end, you guys, generosity will prove more powerful than guns. And I say that as an American who really likes guns. I'm not even going to lie to you guys. Like when we graduate high school, you walk across the stage, they give you a diploma and they give you a pistol. It's just like that's, you have to be 21 to drink in the States, but you got to be 18 to own a gun. It's crazy. Anyway, but listen now, there are those of us that would find our security in earthly weapons instead of spiritual ones. Can I tell you, an apology will make you happier in your marriage than an affair ever will? You will find more happiness if you would just learn to say, I'm sorry, I screwed up, I got this one wrong. See, that's a spiritual weapon. You don't think about it as a weapon, but it absolutely is. And instead, you'll chase after something that the world offers you, and it doesn't satisfy. It actually makes things far, far worse. Spiritually mature people know that the most powerful weapons on the planet are the ones that Jesus relied on. Psalm chapter number 20, verse seven says, there are some people who trust in chariots, some people who trust in horses, which, you know, those were like the military technology of the day. Those were like the tanks of the day. There are some people who trust in the weapons of this world, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. So listen, people are not my enemy You've got to reframe this. I am, I'm looking at people the way that Christ does. And my weapons are not earthly weapons. I'm going to fight, but I'm going to fight the real enemy, and I'm going to fight him with spiritual weaponry instead of earthly one. And then the final thing here is that my focus is on eternity. My focus is on eternity. Did you notice in verse number 51 that when uh, the scripture says that Jesus knew his time to ascend to heaven was at hand, he resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. He, he was like, look, the disciples are getting caught up in petty squabbles about like hospitality and honor and dishonor and all that sort of stuff with the Samaritans. But Jesus wasn't focused on that sort of stuff. He wasn't worried about that little drama. He wasn't worried about some small slight that somebody said or did to him. Instead, he was focused on the kingdom of God. And he was focused on eternity. He was willing to ignore all the small stuff so that he could focus on the big stuff that really did matter. You can say a lot of things about Jesus, and chief among them was that he lived in view of eternity. He lived as if, yes, this life matters, but it matters in light of the life to come. And I gotta tell you, it just seems like a lot of us today are not known for eternity. We are known for earthly things. We are known for small, petty things that do not matter in the long run. If people look at our social media feed, then they'll just assume that we are consumed with politics and sports and money and likes and shares. And Listen, there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But if people look at you and the first thing that they see about you based on your conversation, based on your post is that you're conservative or that you're a Rough Riders fan, or that you're whatever, if it's not Jesus, if there's no sense that you're a follower of Christ and that's the most important thing to you, then you're missing the mark. You're fighting the wrong battles. You're trying to win in things that ultimately aren't going to matter. 
our focus has got to be as much as possible on eternity, on, on serving Jesus and accomplishing the things that really matter. The early church did not win the world, didn't change the world by fighting culture wars, but by following Jesus Christ. So let me, I want to read for you one final passage and then we're done, okay? This is Colossians chapter number three. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, so I just want to read it. I don't, there's part of it on the screen. I want you to listen to all of it though. The scripture says, to me and to you, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. In the, if we skip on down here later in the passage, Paul says this. He says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like Christ. He says, in this life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, free. Christ is all that matters. He lives in all of us. We have an enemy. We have weapons. We have something we should be focused on while we're here on earth. But too many of us are fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapons for the wrong purposes. And so lovingly, I wanna challenge you to set your mind on the things above, to focus on Jesus. Listen, it doesn't matter if your political party gets into power or not, the world's not gonna be perfect there's still gonna be problems. It doesn't matter if you win the lotto and you have all the money in the world, guess what? There are still gonna be issues and problems. Those things do not solve problems, they create problems. There is one who has the power to solve every single issue that you and I face. And we are called to be a part of the solution, not adding to the problem. And so listen, when people think of Christians, they shouldn't think of combative people, people who are fighting against others, they should think of people who are fighting for them, who have such a deep love and desire for their coworkers, even the sorry ones, who have such a deep love and desire for their neighbors, even the ornery ones, who have a such deep love and desire for their family members, even the crazy ones, people who love people so much that they're like, yeah, I wanna be a part of that kind of community. That's what I'm looking for because that's what God called us to do because that's what God did for each and every one of us. Father, I pray today that your word would find root in our hearts. I pray, God, that we would be challenged and we would respond. We would repent, Lord, from the, uh, the, the viewpoint that says my neighbor is my enemy, that, God, we would change our mind on the things that will really change our situations. God, we would rely on prayer and fasting far more than Facebook posts or arguments or money or any of those things. And, Lord, God, I pray that we would live in such a way that eternity is changed because of the things that we choose to be known for in this world. God, help us to be a church that shows Jesus as salt and light to the rest of the world. We pray all this in the name of our Savior. Amen.